Hello and welcome to the Taking Social Stock podcast. Taking Social Stock is a weekly podcast hosted by me, Andy. And me, Heather. Where we discuss various topics going on in the news, either from a social or business standpoint. This week, in episode one, we will be discussing COVID-19, the coronavirus, and the impact it's having on school reopenings. A lot of schools just started the reopening process in the last three to four weeks. And now that everyone's kind of in the swing of things, we're seeing how the COVID virus is impacting school reopenings. So for our first article today, we're going to be discussing a U.S. news article that was posted the end of August here, written by Anna Alam Mindra We'll post a link to the article in the show notes so you can look it up for yourself. So Heather, you picked up this article. Uh, kind of what's the highlights here? Yeah, so I, so the name of this article is with, for kids with special needs, online schooling divides haves and have nots. And this really interested me because we've seen a lot in the news going leading up to school openings and after school openings about the challenges that parents and caretakers are having to to look at when sending their kids back to schools. And I think we've all heard that there's this kind of glaring dividing between growing chasm between haves and have nots. And this really particularly stuck out to me because when you add in the layer of kiddos and youth uh, with extra needs, that is another layer of um, challenges that caretakers and teachers and the children are facing. With special needs, one of the things that stands out, obviously, is there's their individual education plans. Depending on the student, they have different specific needs, and they have a plan of how they're going to address those and how they deliver education to the student. So whenever you're trying to deliver that program through a digital media or in a limited class space with maybe teachers who aren't qualified due to staffing issues, I can see how that become a big problem. Yeah, for sure. And even teachers who are highly qualified that, like you said, just this digital divide, um, something in the article, the article really focuses on California. And it said something, I believe 800,000 students are classified as having additional needs. Um, So it gives us just kind of a glance of what's happening across the country. The IEPs, yes, there is that one one layer of what the the teachers, educators can deliver. It's also about how equipped are the parents and they could have uh, they could be equipped, but that also includes time capacity. And a lot of them are struggling with that right now. I think of the little time I spent around special needs education and I know you have more experience with it, keeping students focused is going to be a challenge, especially in a digital media, like you kind of mentioned. And if the parents aren't there to kind of help boost the, you know, the educational process, that will be basically impossible for the educators to do their jobs, and these students are going to fall further behind. There's an article out, uh, Malcolm Gladwell mentions it in his book, Outliers, that really stood out to me. I think I talked to you about it when I read this part of the book, it's called the summer learning loss, I think, was the, the idea of it. It's originally something written by, let me see if I have the name here, Carl Alexander. So it was research he did into students in the Baltimore public schools where low-income students gained more during the school years but than their well-off peers. But during the summer months, they lost more of it, and that's whenever middle-income and well-to-do kids got ahead. And I think something like this remote education process we're moving into to prevent COVID kind of furthers that gap. So students who have parents who have more resources, obviously are going to be better equipped and they're going to have that that mentorship in the home versus the parents who have less resources and maybe still have to go to work 
don't have the ability to work from home. I could see this the idea of the summer learning loss becoming a bigger issue where the students who are starting from a deficit are put further in the hole. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, I think of even like the the concept of the summer learning loss, you did tell me that and it made me want to read that book, which I still have to read. Um, but that is something that you know, I think that we growing up as working class kids could probably identify with to some degree. Like my parents, were, they worked with me and stuff, but there wasn't um, the, the financial resources to even it. I never worried about food on my plate or anything like that. Right. But there wasn't the resources to plug me into expensive camps and trainings and tutors and stuff where where we're seeing that's becoming a big need with the world that we're in right now um, and and what people are facing. One of the things that really stuck out to me with this was the author mentioned parents who may have the option to not to pause on work or to stop working and focus on educating their kids at home if they're if they're educating them um, in the home or virtually they're doing school virtually. I can't remember the exact wording around it, but it was basically that the parents, they'd have the mental capacity to focus on helping the kids. It could still be a stretch. It was it was probably going to be a stretch because people are being faced with challenges and obstacles from all ends right now. But you throw in the parents who might have to work part-time job, a full-time job, multiple jobs. It's just going to be really difficult for kids. Um, we also... Don't, they don't really dig into race here, but that's another layer for in the equity lens that parents and caretakers are going to be facing as well who are educating children of color. And I also want to kind of shift gears and think about the educator perspective here. We both have friends who are educators. They want to be in the classroom. They want to be teaching their students. You know, there's a reason people are drawn to that field. And in all their college training, their background, you know, in years of teaching, this is new to them. It's a challenge for the families. You know, the families aren't necessarily equipped to be in-home teachers, stay-at-home teachers, uh, or if they even have the time to do that. But the educators, you know, how prepared are they and how much is the school district doing to prepare them to deliver online education to their students? You know, in the college space, we both took online classes. Colleges have been learning how to do that for 15, 20 years now. But your high school, your elementary school, this is a totally new world for them. Yes. You know, it, when you were sharing that, it made me think back many years ago when I did one year as a teacher assistant for kiddos with different abilities. Some hearkening back to this this title would say maybe kids with special needs. And I think about the teacher that I got to learn from and she was my boss. She is, was and is amazing. And seeing how in a small classroom setting, how really present and focused she had to be to, to meet the kiddos where they were, that was a challenge in the, in the classroom itself, in person, small setting. She was seasoned, highly equipped, and there wasn't that layer of having to to work virtually and virtually under really highly stressful conditions. I'd be curious to find out what the school districts did over the summer to prepare the students and the the staff for you know, this upcoming semester. A lot of ways, at least locally, I really felt like the school districts were taking more the approach of, you know, plan for the best and hope for the best versus plan for the worst and hope for the best. Because every school seemed like they, they were focused on, we're going to have a 
a way to get the students in the classroom versus figuring out how do we deal with the technological hurdles of, you know, the special needs students, it's going to be an impossible challenge, but maybe the best strategy was to figure out a way to deliver education to the students who were, you know, more able to learn from home, figure out how to meet the internet needs to spread out the students if they had to split it up and then focus on in-campus or on-campus learning for the students who that would not be an option. It seems like a lot of cases, they just took a one, one size fits all approach. Yeah, it does. And it's obviously not my lens. And I'm sure I'm confident some districts have done really well in preparing, but it does seem like across the board, there was a too much optimism um, and maybe not enough realism in terms of planning. So that was really disappointing to to see because and we're seeing the impact that it's having on like you said the educators the parents that we know we're seeing these humans as as everybody is right now it's beyond frustrating um but that is something that i i don't have a lot of knowledge into of like what happened why did that happen i'm sure there's uh there'll be plenty of case studies coming out about that down the road now if you shift focus a little bit you know we talked a lot about parents, you know, who can stay at home, you know, from the business perspective, it's interesting. There's some articles out there. I think there's a New York or a Wall Street Journal article talking about how parents who are unable to report to the workforce because they have no other option other than to maybe homeschool their children because they're rural where, you know, there's not the internet access. The school districts really have no choice other than to send students home and deliver no education. For those parents, basically would have to homeschool if they want to keep their children progressing. If that were the case, if the pandemic drags out, these students or these parents rather would end up contributing to a pretty large decrease in you know GDP. They estimate it's kind of weird. GDP, a negative 0.1% is actually a huge decrease. Being flat is actually kind of considered a decrease when it comes to gross domestic product. But they do think that just the idea of parents not being able to return to the normal workforce with their students returning or their children returning to class would actually result in a pretty big hit to the economy. So of course, businesses, they realize this too. It's interesting to see which employers are recognizing that challenge and taking the time to develop proactive policies. You know, we've both been working from home since the pandemic started, but a lot of people want to get their employees back in the workforce, back in the office. Productivity is down when employees are remote. It's maybe not huge, people are adapting, but it is kind of, I see it in my business. Have you seen it in yours? I'm sure it has to be there. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's not a big impact, but I think employers would like to see their office spaces being utilized. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really nice to see which employers are taking proactive stances and figuring out ways to help parents who have to educate their students part time during the day. Yeah, I have a question for you. You had mentioned the rural families and our parents and GDP. So are you talking about like even accounting only for rural families that the GDP would take the hit? The numbers that they throw out there, it's um, I forgot who their analysts were that they were citing, but I think they were more looking at if all schools closed. It was more of a worst case scenario. It'd be like a negative 0.6. Um, yeah, their, their thought is if... If everything doesn't reopen this fall or schools have to close like they've kind of been starting to do, that it could be a big negative impact. Because a lot of those parents who live in the rural communities, um, you know, you're going to have some farm uh, related, some manufacturing related jobs. 
And those are jobs that if the employee's not there, I mean, it just doesn't happen. You know, there's, you can't do that remote. Yeah, the hands-on, the skilled labor, technical work. And when you're sharing that, it made me think of like this, this system. So if families who specifically calling out rural areas, rural, urban, suburban, they have their own challenges, but thinking through the rural lens that, that you were mentioning earlier, fam, parents who can't show up, go to a job, get paid, we're already seeing spikes and raises in food insecurity. It's going to be difficult for them to get food access. It's going to be difficult for them to focus and educate their kids and could be a, a pretty bad cycle. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the food insecurity part because I thought about that a little bit too preparing for this episode. And that's a large part of the public's education system, obviously, is feeding kids. Yep. Um, you know, that's why summer can be stressful for, for some families. Yep. You know, we had schools closed at the end of last, last school year and now a lot of them are closing again. So there's obviously a big hunger need out there that's, I think, kind of floating below the headlines in the news. Yeah, if you're looking for it, that's something that is there. But I think with all the other issues that it can feel like it's hidden right now. You know, if you go out and look for stories on Bigfoot, you can find those too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one last topic we want to talk about here that's my article. My article is pretty light reading, but it's interesting to me being someone who spent a lot of my life in college to see what the major campuses and colleges are dealing with. Because obviously college students... There are a lot of them are dealing with their freedom for their first time. And the pandemic may be the last thing on their mind. They're just excited to be there, excited to see people, especially if they spent all summer with their parents not being allowed to do everything they wanted to. So we are seeing a rash of colleges that are just dealing with spikes in cases. They're dealing with large groupings of cases, students who aren't social distancing or practicing any kind of controls. The interesting thing to me too, and I guess I should give my article, it is a Wall Street Journal article, uh, where'd it go? Sorry, here, I'll pull it up. But some schools are kind of citing this idea of health privacy for not sharing all their numbers. The government came out and kind of said, like, no, no, you can share these numbers. It's not a privacy issue. But some schools are kind of hiding behind that to not share how bad of an outbreak they've had. But So wait, question for you. So yeah. are they wanting... Are they wanting to identify the students or they're just wanting to give big the overall number? It's kind of the idea of, I don't know if they're wanting to give out names or anything, but it's more they don't want to share all the details of what's happening just because A, it will scare students, mm -hmm. but also it could hurt enrollment. Yeah. There's been kind of some stories floating around about that. It's an interesting way schools are kind of bending the information using protection laws, privacy protection laws in their favor. Yep. So it's a little weird, but the big thing facing schools right colleges right now is you have all these college students who come onto campus, they're interacting, they're spreading the pandemic, you know, they're spreading the disease amongst each other. And now what do they do? If they close the campus and send the students home, that could create a risk for their, their family that they're returning to, spreading the virus around the country then because you have all these students who came to one place and now you're redispersing them. But when I read through this article, and I'll, I'll give you the title here, It'll be linked in the show notes too. The colleges with COVID-19 outbreaks are sending students home. Uh, it's by, doesn't say who the author is. That to me is a very interesting take that they're saying, well, you know, this is a problem if we send the students home, but I don't know what else the schools could do. If they keep them on the campus, they're just going to continue to spread it amongst each other. They could isolate them on the campus till any students with symptoms are clear, but 
obviously the asymptomatic students is the ones it's kind of the unknown issue yeah i don't remember what article it was it was like in the last week or something though and it was talking about some school i can't remember the name of it but some school they had like a couple dorms set aside for people who would contract it um so they could try to be ahead of the game i don't know how that's planning out for them if i remember correctly though i think that students were contracting covid so frequently that they were leery that they were going to overfill so i question is with these schools did they show did they talk about if many of them are going to online automatically or what does that look like you know it didn't really go into it in this article obviously a lot of colleges are very well equipped for that and whenever everything starts shutting down in the spring they did that pretty much right away. They went to online classes. They already had whatever online tool they were using. It was just a matter of onboarding all the non-remote learning students and the faculty who weren't used to using it. So I would assume most of them, that wasn't an issue. Yeah. What do you, what do you, what comes to mind for you when you think about like the economic impact of this shakeup for students and staff and faculty at colleges? What's well, interesting because there are articles out there about students who are, you know, and people questioning the cost of higher education or college right now because, well, if you can't go to campus, these campuses have these huge endowments, you're charging a lot for tuition, and you're not even on campus to use it. You know, you get charged a fee for printer usage mm-hmm. that's part of your tuition. That obviously, if you're not on campus, can't go to the library you're not printing any paper. There's a lot of those little fees that are built in that I don't know if they're addressing, but there is a big push for reconsideration of what tuition is, but also students are just not going to be completing classes. They're not going to be getting the same education. So I think the biggest economic impact that this is going to have is it's going to delay students getting back, you know, getting into the workforce. You're going to have probably a higher dropout rate. So we're going to have fewer college graduates entering into positions that that want that piece of paper. That's the biggest to me. I think we're going to see a lot more students dragging out their education to five to six years for a four-year degree. I think five years is kind of not unusual, but I think we might see more on that. And that's going to kind of slow down the jobs where they they rely on those fresh college graduates. Yeah, I don't want to downgrade that experience because I I expect that that'll be a big challenge. I also, on the flip side, am curious to see the innovation that comes out of this with people being home, you know, technology, what that might look like and in terms of entrepreneurship in the future. Yeah, that's, it'll be very interesting to see because I mean, challenges are what spur innovation, you know, so I think we're going to see a lot of employers embracing the whole work from home thing past the pandemic. They're figuring out best practices. They're figuring out you know, what kind of employees they need. I mean, it's a good time for every business to question how important is each role they have and what where are they deficient if something like this were to continue. And then, of course, for parents and students, um, you know, they're facing new challenges and it's an opportunity for businesses to jump out and figure out ways to meet those needs. I think we're going to see a lot of new tech come out, you know. We're relying on laptops and tablets right now, but I'm sure new remote learning technology is probably in the works by a lot of tech companies. Yeah, I imagine that some professors specifically, I'm making, thinking of a couple of people we know who are professors and they're younger, they're up up to speed, they're hip to technology. But I think at their school where they teach, 
they had like a learning opportunity class for for professors who needed to learn how to uh, teach remotely because that's even something for highly formally educated people. I think that's going to be a challenge. So I think it'll be interesting to see how many of these schools in the coming months become kind of like temporary ghost towns. Oh, yeah, definitely. The big thing going forward is I think schools and employers just have to continue to innovate and expect the pandemic to continue. The whole idea was that it would end in the summer. That didn't happen. We have vaccines on on the way. There's a lot of progress going in that field. You know, no one knows how long-term effective they are. I think the wise advice for any business in school would be to plan for continued shutdowns and just hope for improvements going down the road. Yeah. In the meantime, it's like a lot of try to, if we can or when we can, support people we know who are parents and educators because it's no matter what happens, it's just a tough time for everybody. For sure. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode, episode one of the Taking Social Stock podcast. If you have any questions, we do have an email address. Uh, it's just a Gmail address for now, but it's takingsocialstock at gmail.com. We'd love to take your questions, uh, maybe answer them on the podcast here, but that'll do it for us today. Thanks, folks.